Welcome back, everyone, to Then There Were Two, a History of the World series. I'm Jeffrey Clark, being joined virtually by Lucas Mitchell. We're both coming to you from the hot desert city of Chicago, Arizona. You laugh, but it was close to 100 degrees today, the day we're recording this. The high tomorrow, I think, is 101, where I'm at. My son's elementary school implemented indoor pickup procedures, which is really no different than the current ones for him, other than just they're changing doors and trying to keep him inside as much as possible. But my wife, who teaches in a school without air conditioning until next year, now that they finally got the um, bond approved or whatever it was in the last election, she was off yesterday. She's off today, what was supposed to be the first two days of instruction, and instead got a chance to kind of stay the heck out of a building where it would have felt like 120. So now we've got our hot venting out of the way, no pun intended there. Let us get into the 1978 World Series, hot as we are at this particular moment. So let's start with the defending champion New York Yankees, and it looks like that they shouldn't even be here because they are very far back in the middle of the season. On July 17th and 19th, they reached their season-worst 14 games back in the American League East. And in fact, they are not even the closest team to the American League East leading Red Sox. In fact, the Brewers are ahead of them, and the Red Sox have a 13-and-a-half game lead on the Brewers. And everything seems to come to a head when Billy Martin, in all his wisdom, decides to incriminate Reggie Jackson and George Steinbrenner under his own jurisdiction. Specifically, he says of Jackson and Steinbrenner, one's a born liar and the other's convicted. And this would piss everybody off enough to the point where he was forced to resign. That happened on July 23rd. He was replaced by Bob Lemon. And he would tell the Yankee Stadium crowd that he would return as manager in a future season. That was less than a week after he was forced to resign. He returns the next year, but was fired at season's end by George Steinbrenner. And Lucas, you and I have known about Billy Martin being kind of a big mouth over the course of our learning about baseball history. But even with George Steinbrenner giving up, telling his men that they might have a shot second place if they play well for the rest of the season, and I'm sure that Billy March was responsible for a lot of the players feeling down at that point, it's not really a surprise to see this man in the middle of all this controversy. Yeah, and go figure Reggie Jackson is involved in this sort of thing again. I mean, the man wins... But it doesn't always look the prettiest in doing that. But nonetheless, you mentioned just how far back this team was, and they make a remarkable comeback. And you see it a little bit in just kind of looking at their numbers on the season. They had 42 come-from-behind wins on the year out of their ultimate 100, the 100th we will get to in a moment. That included 13 walk-off wins as well. And, you know, as you look at this, though, they ultimately did manage to fight their way back, but needed a game 163 that everyone remembers. And I'm going and looking at the numbers and I'm going, is this the Bucky effing dent here? And yes, it is the Bucky effing dent here. Indeed. And let me just backtrack a little bit more. On September 1st, the Yankees had played well enough to the point where they're only six and a half games behind the Red Sox, and they end up sweeping the Red Sox in four straight games at Fenway by scores of 15 to 3, 13 to 2, 7 to nothing, and 7 to 4. That became known as the Boston Massacre. 
And like you said, at season's end, they found themselves tied for the division title. And Lucas, you seem to love talking about these tiebreakers. So I'm going to let you have the floor on this. Yeah, so we have a one-game playoff here in 1978 to decide the American League East. This is a game played at Fenway, and Boston gets out to an early lead. They score a run in the second and then one in the sixth, so they're up two to nothing. And then in the seventh is when everything just completely unravels. Chris Chambliss and Roy White hit singles off of uh, an old friend of ours in uh, Mike Torres. And after that, pinch hitter Jim Spencer flies out. And then Bucky Dent, a guy who did not do a ton of damage over the course of the regular season. His ultimate numbers for the year, 243, five home runs, 40 RBIs. Well, one of those five home runs came in this game. A three-run shot over the Green Monster in the seventh gave the Yankees a 3-2 to two lead. They would go on to win this game 5-4 to four and represent the American League East in the postseason. And let's not discount Ryan Guidry's contributions to that particular season. He went 25-3. That 893 win percentage was a record for a 25-game winner. Any of the major leagues with a 1.74 ERA. So even though the Yankees had to claw their way back from way back in the standings, you have to tip your cap to them for not giving up even when all conventional wisdom says that they should not have even been in the postseason. Yeah, and now unfortunately this does, you know, I mentioned the Bucky Effing Dent nickname, and you know, I was aware of this because of another Yankee who will become infamous in Boston in about twenty-five years time. I had to do the math there real quick. But instead, here the Yankees are. They're back again for yet another uh, World Series appearance. Ryan Gedry also wins the AL Cy Young Award by a unanimous vote. And their opponents are the same opponents from a year ago, the Los Angeles Dodgers. And this was a team that featured pretty much the same cast as the previous season. The one exception was Bob Welch, who was a 21-year-old fastball thrower from Eastern Michigan. He was called up in midseason, and he helped pitch the Dodgers to the National League pennant by posting a 2.02 ERA. So, not a whole lot else to talk about this Dodger team other than the fact that, unlike last year, they have home field advantage. So, you would think that this would play to their advantage here. I mean, you would potentially think there's, you know, a couple of other factors kind of coming into play on this. The Dodgers had their own little bit of clubhouse tension. Uh, Steve Garvey and Don Sutton got into a fight in the clubhouse in August. It ends up not mattering. They finished two and a half games ahead of the Reds. Um, but the other thing that they have going for them is longtime coach and guy that we have talked about before on this podcast, Jim Gilliam, had a brain hemorrhage and passed away two days before the start of the series. Prior to game one of the series, the Dodgers retire his number 19. They have a black patch with his number on their uniforms for this series. And obviously they have kind of that as a galvanizing factor coming in. And the film for this World Series, which features the first rematch since the Yankees and Milwaukee Braves faced each other in the 1958 series, this is the first time the World Series film was narrated by someone with no real connection to baseball. Up until this point, we have had broadcasters narrate every World Series film, 
But the actor William Conrad is the narrator for the World Series film, and I couldn't quite figure out who this was because it was not a voice that I had heard before. I mean, it certainly was not Kurt Gowdy. It was certainly not Joe Garagiola. And I was surprised to find out that an actor, which would become commonplace for future World Series films, is narrating one of these as far back as 1978. Yeah, I mean, it's different, we'll say. You know, I, not something I was expecting. Interesting change of pace. The other thing that I noticed that I found interesting throughout the World Series film was the uh, use of the same music as the Monday Night Football theme. I actually was going to mention that, and slight spoiler alert for those of you who are keeping track at home or want to fast forward to that. It plays at the end of Game 2 and also during Game 4. So that's what we'll say about that. Now let's get into the actual action here. Tommy John is the pitcher for the Dodgers, and he induces ground balls in 18 of the 23 outs that he records, allows only two hits while shutting out the Yankees through the first six innings. And he probably was happy to get some support from his offense, which he got from Dusty Baker leading off the second with the home run to left. That was the only RBI he had in the game despite recording three hits. And then Davey Lopes drives in five of the Dodgers' first six runs with two homers in the second and fourth innings. And then Reggie Jackson brings out his Mr. October persona by leading off the seventh with a solo home run to right for his sixth home run over the past four series games. That breaks a record previously held by Lou Gehrig. And then Terry Forster leaves John for the final one to third innings. He strikes out a couple of guys that have been mainstays in baseball. That's just for the Yankees, Paul Blair and Roy White. Game one is not really a contest. The Dodgers blow out the Yanks 11 to 5. And, you know, again, I kind of come back to the Jim Gilliam thing. So Davey Lopes, the Dodger captain, was one of the guys who was closest to Gilliam. And a two-homer game for him which left uh, Reggie Jackson to say after this game, uh, Lopes is blatantly penetrated by the spirit of Gilliam. Maybe not the choice of words I would have used, but you do you, Reggie. Well, Gilliam's funeral happened the day of Game 2, and Lopes said in a team meeting after the funeral, after everything we've gone through, playing this game should be a piece of cake. And it wasn't as easy as it happened in Game 1, in fact, Jackson drawing the game's first two runs with an RBI double down the right field line in the third, although he may have been helped by a Reggie Smith bobble. And then Ron Say hits a go-ahead three-run homer two left with two outs in the sixth. He also had an RBI single in the fourth. And you had Bert Hooten, whom you remember from the last episode, coming out of the game in favor of Forster after giving up a leadoff single to White in the seventh. White would later score at Jackson RBI ground outs to seventh. And then Welch relieves Forster with two on and one out in the ninth. And he induces a Thurman Munson flyout. And then we get a big at-bat for Reggie Jackson. And remember, Jackson has homered six times in his previous four World Series games, and he's driven in all three Yankee runs in this game thus far. And according to one of my books, it's as big a showdown as one could ask for. You have a young fireballer against a cocky hitter in Jackson, a guy who slugs no less. And for seven minutes, these two guys go at each other, and Welch doesn't throw anything but fastballs. Welch would later tell George Vesey, 
I loved every moment of it. I wasn't scared. I was thinking strikeout, and he was thinking home run. And Jackson works the count full, fouls off several pitches, stays alive, and finally on the ninth pitch of the at-bat, he swings big time. He misses, and his body corkscrews around and falls to his knees. And he stalks away, cursing, staring back at Welch. And then he throws his bat against the dugout wall. The Dodgers win this game by a tight score of 4-3. to three. And the Dodgers are up 2-0, having taken care of business at home. Now they go with the Bronx feeling good about themselves. Yeah, no, they have to feel great about this. So if you've gotten your first two games... Yeah, going into the Bronx is tough. It's a place where your franchise has had a ton of demons over your history, but you've got things going good. Your young 21-year-old fireballer just struck out one of the most clutch hitters in the game. Now, in initial post-game interviews, Jackson did blame his strikeout on Bucky Dent running from second with the 3-2 pitch and said that that distracted him. But in later interviews, Jackson would turn around and say, you know what, Welch got one past me. Credit to him. By the way, Jim Murray would write about Ron Say, who was the offensive hero for the Dodgers in this game. He looks as if he should be a ride at Disneyland. I don't know if that would fly today. Well, Ron Say's nickname is the Penguin, so do with that information what you will. Anyway, let's go to the Bronx and Game 3. Joe DiMaggio throws out the first pitch, which seems to be a regular thing for Jolton Joe in a lot of these World Series. And I want to point this out again. Once again, I see that the Yankee Stadium line scoreboard still has Viz instead of LA, just like they did the previous year. So I'm coming to the conclusion, having not seen any other Yankee games from that era, I'm coming to the conclusion of one of two things. Either they were just lazy all the time, or they, for whatever reason, did not want to acknowledge L.A. on their scoreboard when they very easily could have. I don't know either. We'll go with it, even though, like we said last week, and we'll say it again. You have a digital scoreboard. The VIS for Visitor is not, like, hardwired into the thing. Not that hard. Anyway, Mickey Rivers hits a solo homer to Rice with one out in the first. And that is really all that the Yankees need to do because Greg Nettles has the defensive game of a lifetime third that would make Brooks Robinson jealous. As Bob Lemon put it, in 41 years, I've never seen anyone play third base better than that. And, you know, we could go on about how great he was in the hot corner in that game, but just talking about wouldn't do it justice. All I'll say is that Gidry appreciated Nettles' efforts as he walked seven, struck out four, and was still able to pull off a 5-1 to one complete game victory. Yeah, so Greg Nettles in this game is credited with two putouts and five assists, and the World Series film does a good job of kind of showing off some of his highlights there, and I remember hearing the quote from Lemon about not having seen a better game at third, and my first thought was, uh, Brooks Robinson would like a word, but I mean, very Brooks Robinson-esque, and a huge credit to Greg Nettles. Not to be outdone, Ron Say makes some tough plays at third in game four, and Reggie Smith hit a three-run homer to right with two outs in the fifth. So it looks like Say's efforts are not going to be in vain. And then we have White singling with one out in the sixth to extend his postseason hitting streak to nine. That was followed by a walk by Munson. Then Jackson drives in White with an RBI single. And then let's talk about this, shall we? We have a play that... 
I knew was coming for this particular series, but I've never had a chance to really look at it until I was watching the World Series film. So, Lou Pinella hits a soft line drive to Bill Russell at short. Again, it's not the basketball player, Bill Russell. There are two men on base. Then Russell drops the liner, perhaps intentionally, and tries to catch Jackson napping off of first to turn an inning-ending double play. But Jackson sticks his hip out and deflects the throw, which breaks up the double play, and Munson is able to score from second. The TV replays show that Jackson moved into the path of the ball purposely. However, first base umpire Frank Poley, along with the rest of the crew, decided that an interference call was not warranted. And, of course, it doesn't help that replay wasn't available to umpires at that time. And probably the most memorable image of the entire World Series film, and maybe the entire series in general, is Tommy Lasorda coming out to dispute this call that he was going to argue until he was blue in the face. And the World Series film does a good job catching a lot of that argument. And one reading that I have is kind of making an argument that, you know, this was a terrible play and that the easier decision would have been tag Monson going to third for your second out, then step on second to get third, or you step on second and then get Munson in a rundown. But regardless, I like the idea of the drop the liner to try to get Jackson caught. Now, when I watch the play, I'm not 100% sure if Jackson is intentionally trying to get in the way of the throw, but if he's not, he's being very laissez-faire about the whole thing of just, he's there and he's in the way and I pulled up the rule book again, and I looked at this, you know, because this has come up before. Uh, rule 6.01 on interference, obstruction, yada, yada. So the pertinent part is uh, rule 6.01, part A, batter or runner interference. And I don't even know, like section, subsection, whatever. But part five of this is um, it is interference by a batter or runner when, and then we go down to the fifth part of this, which is the relevant point. Any batter or runner who has just been put out, or any runner who has just scored, that part's not relevant, but any batter or runner who has just been put out hinders or impedes any following play being made on a runner, such runner shall be declared out for the interference of his teammate. Now there's a comment to this where if the runner continues to advance or returns or attempts to return to his last legally touched base after he has been put out, he shall not by that act alone be considered as confusing, hindering, or impeding the fielders. But Jackson's not really doing any of those things. He's just standing there. So by my interpretation of the rule, I would argue that this should have been interference. This should be an inning-ending double play, and it should be 3-1 to one Dodgers at this point. Instead, it's 3-2. to two. The interesting thing about us recording this episode on the day we're recording this is that earlier today I was at the White Sox game and they won the game on, I don't want to say a similar play, but Tim Anderson was caught in a rundown between second and third as the ghost runner in the bottom of the 10th inning, but the throw to third went off of his batting helmet and he was able to score because the ball got away. So the Sox won the game without having an official at-bat in the 10th inning, which is a perfect byproduct of Rob Manfred Ball, but that is a topic for a different day. But going back to 1978, Tommy Lasorda sums it up perfectly when he says, 
That's a damn shame, I'll tell you that, as he's walking off the field. It's the understatement of the century, Mr. Lasorda. And Blair singles to lead off the eighth, and he reaches on, reaches second on a sack bunts by White, and then scores the tying run on a Munson double. And then we have Goose Gossage and Welch dueling, and then with the game going into extra innings, Welch's magic runs out, because White walks with one out in the 10th, and he moves to second on a Jackson single, and the Pinella has a walk-off RBI single. He correctly anticipates a fastball, makes the most of it. The Yankees have tied the series with a 4-3 to victory. Yeah, I mean, you can make the argument that that Reggie Jackson leaning or standing, quote-unquote, interfering with the double play ball kind of turned into the turning point, but the Dodgers did still have the lead at that point, and they're just unable to hold on as the Yankees, we mentioned 42 come-from-behind victories in the regular season, 13 walk-offs. They get one here in Game 4 of the World Series to even things up and force a pivotal Game 5. Game 5 features Bob Hope throwing out the first pitch. Lope singles with one out in the third and promptly scores from first on a Russell double, but that's as good as it gets for the Dodgers in this game as Munson drives in five runs. The Yankees have a series record 16 singles out of the 18 hits they get, and they get some help from Jim Beatty, a rookie who is a standout in basketball at Dartsmith. He throws the first complete game of his career, and he was someone who went up and down with the Yankees during the season, but a real heck of a way to earn the first complete game of your career. 12-2 to is the final here. Yeah, allows just two runs, scatters nine hits over the course of the game with four walks, eight strikeouts. I mean, all told, that is a pretty solid performance all the way around. Uh, Burt Hooten last in just two and a third in this one. He gives up four runs, three of them earned. Lance Routzon and Charlie Huff uh, all kind of taking lumps as the Yankees just poured it on as the game went on, and they have a chance to clinch in Los Angeles, have two chances to pull it off. Duke Snyder throws out the first pitch before game six. Lopes once again sets the table for the Dodgers offense. He leads off the first with a home run to left, but... Don Sutton and Welch, once again, do not have their best stuff. And you have Brian Doyle, who we have not talked about yet. I probably should have talked about him a little bit more leading up to this. But he was filling in for the injured Willie Randolph. He, along with Den, had back-to-back RBI base hits in the second and the sixth. And in fact, the two would combine for 17 hits in the series, despite hitting eighth and ninth, respectively, in the batting order. And then to put the final nail in the coffin, White has a leadoff walk in the seventh. And then he scores on a Jackson two-run homer to right off of Welch. And those are the final runs of the series. The Yankees become the first team in World Series history to win four straight games after losing the first two. So the Yankees have repeated as champs. Yeah, and some credit for this win, too, has to go to Catfish Hunter. He picked up the win going seven strong, and this one allows just the two runs, scattering six hits through there. Only three strikeouts, but given that he got hit pretty hard in the 77 series, he bounces back fairly well here in 78 to help propel the Yankees to a second straight World Series title. And Bucky Dent gets World Series MVP because he leads the Yankees with 10 hits. 
But you could make the case that he and Doyle should have gotten co-World Series MVPs because Doyle had also as many hits in the World Series 7 as he had in his entire previous Major League career, which was 10. And, you know, I mentioned that they combined for 17 hits in the series. And I don't know if the Riders were still on a high from dense heroics from the American League East tiebreaker. But I honestly believe that... Both of these guys should have split World Series MVP honors. And usually I don't dispute who should win World Series MVP. And while I'm not technically doing it here, I really think that they should have both been honored. Because you got offensive heroics from unexpected heroes. So I think that they should have been rewarded appropriately. Yeah, so Doyle, for his part, um, just as a point of reference, his regular season numbers, he hit 192, did not homer or drive in any runs, scored just six times during the regular season, but he turns that around by going seven for 16 and scoring four runs, driving in two in this six-game stretch, has splits of 438, 438, 500, so his OPS was 40 points higher than Dent's. I think probably the big difference is Dent drove in seven to Doyle's two is probably kind of one of the factoring arguments in there. I can see the argument behind a co-MVP type of thing. I don't blame them, though, for going with Bucky Dent in the grand scheme of things. And Welch definitely became something of a folk hero despite posting an 0-1 record in this series and a 6.23 ERA. He got put into some pretty big moments. Unfortunately, he was really only clutch in one of them and faltered in a couple more. Granted, the last of which happened when the game was most likely already decided, but you know you have to give him credit for being able to go from playing in the minors as late as June to being a World Series hero, at least for the moment when you take the first couple of games into account. There will be another pitcher who was called up from the minor leagues in the middle of the season and became a World Series hero in a much more desirable outcome. I'm really looking forward to that several months down the line. I think you know which one I'm talking about. But in any event, Welch, at least for Dodger fans, had to have been quite the man to look to for the future after this series and in his defense he was only 21 at the time i mean he showed in game two that the moment was not too big for him and just the yankees were the better team you know that's really all that you can say at this point um some other numbers here from this series up to this point even like present day the 1978 series has one of the highest TV ratings ever, uh, averaged a Nielsen rating of 32.8 and a share of 56, which is pretty darn good. Now, granted, we're still pretty heavily in the era of network television being king, but a lot of people watching uh, these games. And they see the Yankees win their 22nd World Series championship. And we will now look ahead to 1979. We get a rematch of a series from eight years earlier. And one team is obviously trying to repeat the outcome. The other trying to rewrite their place in the history books. And these are teams that have different players from back then. Which one of them will triumph? Tune in next week to find out. 
So for Lucas Smithson, I'm Jeffrey Clark. Thanks for listening to our 1978 episode. Then there were two of History of the World series. You can like us on Facebook, follow us on the platform we're still calling Twitter. Subscribe. We'll see you next time.